Okay, Moby Dick. Um, remember that one of the one of the points that I had made last time, and that you've heard me make numerous times, is that in the modern world, with the sciences and the Protestant Reformation, we've lost a sense of the logos in nature. Um, up until the modern world. He, you know, the, the Christian Middle Ages, in, in the Christian Middle Ages, Christians were, Catholics, were largely unreflective. They grew up in that faith. They didn't think about things. There's no other, I mean, nobody was going to turn to Islam if you were raised in a Christian culture. Um, it was an unreflective age. People grew up in it. They accepted it. I think that's what happens with a lot of cradle Catholics today. People grow up and you don't question your faith. And I've mentioned this before. One of the guys in the Francis group came after, he was sort of amazed at what we did and he said, he was expressing his appreciation for the class and he said, you know, I grew up Catholic and the, the church always told me um, what to do and how to do it, but never why. And it's like a light was turned on him. Ours is a faith in which we're encouraged, asked to be reflective about ourselves. If conversions are real, they're real because moments of self-discovery are real that throughout our life we learn to see more about ourselves. Um, but we live in an age that's um, rationalistic. It's, it's not um, reflective enough. Um, and we're, we're in a faith that asks us to do that, to be reflective. Um, Moby Dick is largely about that. I want to turn to the um, poem, the lyric poem I was holding off, because we've talked about this notion of a logos. Um, Catholics in the Middle Ages would not have given that a thought. There's no way, there's no way St. Thomas or any of the serious scholastics would have not given that a thought. The notion of a logos would have been at the center of their lives. Thomas could not have done his work if he didn't believe there was an affinity between the human mind and nature. Is everybody clear in that? Nature is not some other. There's an affinity. We're all made by the same God. God is present in a leaf, in an animal. He's, his image is there. He created it all. The human intellect is only different because it's got a mind to reflect on these things. So the Logos was at the center of that world. Okay? We live in a world in which we've lost that sense. And one of the reasons for choosing the poem last week, you remember that the night it died and these animals were taking care of it. There was an affinity the poet is capturing in what happens in the, in the action of that poem. Okay? Tonight I want to look at the, the poem on the back side of that, that um, poem we looked at last week for the same reason. In a Christian world, there was this affinity. Here, here, look. What, what, 20 years ago? All of us grew up in a, on a movie that was called Aliens. Yes? If you've seen it, you, you know, you... That there's this alien-like stuff, evil, just malicious after us. Um, the Protestant mindset has that sharks who are after us. That nature has some inherent evil and it's after us. It has an intention to it. Think about the number of movies you've seen like that. 
Um, but leave us with this sense that there's this inherent evil that's come to get us. Um, but I went back to a time when there was a sense of an affinity, something companionable, or um, there was some appreciation. St. Francis, brother, son, sister, moon. If you've, if you've not seen that movie for Easter, you should see it. Brother, son, sister, moon. It's, it, the first time I saw it is when I went to UD as a graduate. And it put me on tears. put me in tears. Brother, son, sister, moon. St. Fran- Francis could not look at the world without feeling an affinity that there was a life-giving force in the sun, in the moon, the stars, that, and he was a part of that. They were a part of the same creation. Okay? We don't live in that kind of a world anymore. My hope is that doing this work in this class will help recover it some. So, you know, we don't grow up like children waiting for a boogeyman to get us while we're sleeping or, you know. The three ravens. So this is the on the opposite side from Timur Mortis. Remember, um, Timur Mortis is, Timur Mortis contrabut me is, the, the idea of, of dying disturbs me. Um, upsets me. The whole experience of death upsets me. And that line, Timur Mortis Contribute Me, was taken from the Book of the Dead, the, 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 the rites in the Catholic Church, um, the words spoken at a, during a funeral. So that those words are taken from a funeral. The Three Ravens, it's um, a ballad like, um, like Timur Mortis. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree with a down, down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree, they were as black as they might be, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? Down in yonder green field there lies a knight slain under a shield. His hounds they lie down at his feet, so well they can keep, can their master keep. His hawks they fly so eagerly, there's no fowl, dare him come nigh. Down there comes a fallow doe, she's carrying a child. A fallow doe is great with young as she might go. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. She got him up upon her back and carried him to earth and lake. She buried him before the prime, she was dead herself ere even song time. God send every gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman. Okay, that's two poems. They just happen to be medieval poems, but in both of them, it's as if um, nature is nurturing. It's caring of humans. Um, I'd, I'd, if, if I had this in Middle English, I would have read it a little bit different, but just go down to, I think it's the fourth stanza. You know that if I were reading this the way we did Chaucer when I read the beginning of um, Canterbury Tales in Middle English. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? Down in yonder green field there lies a nick slain under his shield. His hounds they lay down at his feet, so will the con their master keep. He will go on like that. So it wouldn't sound, you know, it's close to our English, but it's still very, very different from our English, so. Okay, down to serious business, if that wasn't serious already. Okay, um, get ready for 
a fire hydrant. <laughs> what to say? Okay. I'm going to do something you know that I hate doing because I've been pretty scrupulous about not doing it for the time that we've been together. You know that I hate giving away endings. If you know how much I hate that, you'll know how much I hate it be because this is the ending of a really great, great story. I'm going to give it away. Lots of you already know it, but um, because I want to, I want to, I want to put out some questions to you guys before, or so you can keep them in your mind while you're reading. Um, this is the Jonah story. This is the Jonah story at its heart. Um, actually, if you actually if you get the book that you know I've encouraged you to get, it's the Ignatius Press book. I've got an essay in the back which makes that pretty clear. It, to me, it should be a standard reading of Moby Dick, but it's not. It's the Jonah story. If you read the Jonah story and then um, put it put um, Moby Dick next to it, you can't miss it. Father Mapple's sermon is, about, is the Jonah story. Neville will refer to it. Several chapters will bring us back to the Jonah story. When Ishmael goes aboard ship, we've just heard the Jonah story from Father Mapple, in which um, the, the captain cheats Jonah. If you remember the Jonah story, he cheats him. He, he, he gives him less than what's just. What, hap what do Peleg and Bilad do with um, Ishmael? Cheat him badly, badly, and, and, it's, and this is the I, I'm giving away things right now that we're supposed to come to. But when Ishmael comes into the cabin, um, Peleg is reading what? It's the passage from Scripture where Christ is saying, "Lay not your treasures up on earth." Is it Bildad? He's reading, um, "Lay your lay not your treasures up on earth." And we learned that the two captains are, are out for nothing but um, money. They, they want to make, I'm going to come to the passage because they're, they're, worth, they're worth reading. This is a, um, a money-making venture. It's the beginning of the commercial regime as, through Melville's eyes. We already saw it through Dante and the Divine Comedy. Now we're getting it from Melville. And is it, is it I think it's Peleg. No, that's the one who's skin, skin flint and Peleg is arguing. Favor, supposedly favor of yeah, the yeah, and I, th I may have a backwards here, but I, th I thought it was in when when one of them says to the other, the one who's been negotiating with um, Ishmael about the lay, it's two hundred and something. That is the two hundred part of the take he will get. That's their that's their contract they're going to make with each other. When the other one comes in. And the first one asks him, the second one, God, God, um, the first one asks, what should we give him? The other one says, 700, the 700th part. So it went from the th 300th part, which is nothing, to the 700th part. And he compromised, and I think it finally ends up being 300. But he's being cheated. And you know he goes to sea, it's, it's to deal with a whale, whale, and at the end of the story, I'm not going to give it away, at the end of the story, something happens. Something happens. Um, something happens. And here's my question. Um, 
And by the way, I would ask you to be really careful of the Gregory Peck movie, which I watched when I was really young, because the focus in the Gregory Peck movie is tragedy. And I'm going to argue through this whole thing that this is not a tragedy at all. The whole of Ahab's tragedy is filtered through Ishmael's eyes. We only get it through him. He's doing exactly what Jonah did in the Jonah story. He's, follow this. Jonah is trying to escape God. Ishmael, in some ways, is trying to escape God. When he gets in the dumps, he goes to sea. He tries to escape his problems. Um, Jonah had, he did everything he could to avoid God. And he couldn't, and then he had to do something. So he goes back to Nineveh to tell them what it is. I'm not sure that we know. Yeah, so in Ishmael, in the Ishmael Moby Dick story, if Ishmael is a Jonah figure, what does he come back to tell us? This is one of the most serious questions that I can ask him, because the, the ending is going to be really dark in some ways, really, really dark. What does he come back to say to us? Is there a God in the world or not? What is it that, um, that leads to the calamity at the end? And it's a, it's a massive calamity. Um, is, that, is the calamity um, an accident? Is God behind it in some way? Is this a modern novel in which there is no God? This is a very, very, it has a very, very dark ending. And Ishmael's giving it to us. So this is exactly like the Jonah story. It's exactly like Dante. Dante went to the afterlife, and he comes back to tell us that story. And you know, remember when he meets his great-grandfather, he's encouraged to be as truthful as he can, even though people are not going to like him. He's got to speak the truth. And the truth is, lots of the people he knows, and lots of them are Catholic, most of them are Catholics, lots of them are priests, and a good number of them are popes. Um, they're all in hell. So Dante doesn't mince words. He, um, he, he speaks the truth in this amazing poem. Ishmael is doing the same thing. Okay? He comes back to tell us a story. So as you're reading, be aware. This is like Dante. There's two Dantes. The journeyer, the poet. There's two journeyers here. There's Ishmael going out. And there's Ishmael telling us the story. This is a poem. It's a story for us. And if he's like Jonah, it's prophetic. It's saying something about man's relationship to God. Or it may not, because lots of critics today are saying, it's a mystery, it's inscrutable, we can't know anything. And is that clear? Okay. And the other thing is, what if, if, it, if he's come back to tell us something, what do we have to learn about ourselves? This seems like a, a whaling trip. And it is. But what do we learn about America? This is about America. Deeply, deeply about America. And what do we learn about ourselves? So just keep those in questions in your mind, okay? As you go through it. We th um, it's not about people going to church. But all these people are principally Christians. We're watching a Christian view that is breaking apart, absolutely breaking apart. And I hope we can see that today because that's where I wanted to go.
But keep those questions in mind, okay? Okay, let's start. Moby Dick. Why is this um, book important? Because this book is about our founding, our beginnings. It's about the dark side of a Protestant religious view of the world. There were two foundings in America. One was in Plymouth. I think you all, this is all history for you guys. One was in Plymouth and one was in Jamestown. The one in Jamestown took place in 1607 and the one in Plymouth was 1620. And you know that the group that came, the pilgrims, were Christian, deep, deeply committed Christians. They risked their lives. They left England and went to the northern lands to establish a, um, a city in which they could practice their religious faith diligently, faithfully, in freedom. Couldn't happen, so they traveled. They risked their lives to go to America in order to live their faith more completely. So this is not a hypocritical people on the surface. These are deep, they risked their lives for religious convictions. They gave up their lives. And they did it with this understanding. They believed that, that Europe was Catholic, fundamentally Catholic. Their view of the Catholic world was, was that it was, a, it was the Antichrist. That the Reformation was incomplete. This is true in terms of motives. The Reformation was incomplete in its work. It didn't go far enough. And you know the Puritans were exiled from England because they didn't conform to the media race, the medium way of Elizabeth and the other movements. So they were forced into exile like the Catholics. They went to the northern lands and from there they went to the new world. They looked back at Europe as a spoiled, depraved, corrupted garden. When they came to America, they found a new garden full of possibilities. So America from the beginning was looked at as a new Eden. It would give rise to a new Adam, a new Eve. The whole image of America was pastoral, that it was this undeveloped land. It, it, it hadn't given in to the corruptions of a Catholic world in Europe. I can't say that starkly enough. So the Catholic-Protestant contrast, even though Melville's not speaking about it, is implied in the whole thing. Okay? Um, the, 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 so the Plymouth founding was fundamentally religious, the Jamestown founding was fundamentally commercial. They came to start um, tobacco plantations. If you've read um, Robinson Crusoe, what's the, um, the other one? Mal Flanders? She, at the end, um, goes to America. Prisoners are sent there to help with the plantations, and you know that slaves are brought in eventually. So North and South, very different in their beginnings, absolutely different. The, the North is Puritan, Protestant, the South is commercial in its inspirations. Um, Melville is writing at the end of a period in which Americans were attempting to find their own voice. Underline that, it's crucial. Americans were trying to find their own voice. They had been British, they'd been a British colony for a long, long time. They won the War of Independence and people began to realize that they were no longer British, even though that was their heritage, their cultural heritage. So America became very reflective, very self-conscious. That it had to do, it, it set out, its declaration set out to do something that no country in the world, not even Athens, no country had ever done in the world before, not, certainly not England, and certainly not a feudal Europe where class systems were in place. 
they, they were gonna, the, the proposition was that all men were created equal um, and everybody, nothing, birth, status, anything like that, should get in the way of everybody having an equal chance to become who he was. Um, so they realized that they were a new thing, a new creation, and they had to find their own voices. So James Fenimore Cooper, I'm going to, I think some of you probably know these things. James Fenimore Cooper wrote the Leatherstocking series about Hawkeye. If you've seen The Deerslayer, it's one of my favorite movies. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie, wonderful movie, Deerslayer. You've got an American who's learned, who was raised by the Indians, who's learning the wisdom from a native people that hasn't been spoiled by a mechanized society, i.e. a Western European society. So what makes Hawkeye so special is he's got those natural instincts, like an animal, that he learned from the Indians because they're closer to nature. In The Pioneers, one of his books, there's this scene where these, um, these Englishmen bring in a Gatling gun, a machine gun, to shoot pigeons. It just horrifies Hawkeye because, think about it, it's mindless. You just kill things. It's nominalist. There's no universals. You treat nature the way you want. Hawkeye would never do that. He, for him, it would be an art. You learn to be one with nature so that when they killed, in, in the movie, The Last of the Mohicans, when they killed a deer at the beginning of the movie, they bow down over it and bless the spirit of the deer because they know they're receiving life from that. In the pioneers, this guy has a Gatling gun. He's just mowing down creatures. Is there any thought that, that they have an effect on nature? Not at all. So Cooper, Emerson wrote Self-Reliance, which I don't happen to think very much of. It's really popular because it's saying rely on yourself alone. It's on Eva Winters said of Emerson, it's a sentiment I happen to share, that Emerson was the left hand of the devil, that he, he's one of the most remarkable intellectuals of his time. He was also a Unitarian minister. He was a part of the Transcendentalist group, Thoreau and all that group. They didn't believe in Christ's divinity and they didn't believe in the Trinity. They believed that religion was what you made it, you know, in your your personal actions. So it's, it's, it's in support of the, that aspect of the Reformation that made the individual will an arbiter of everything. Um, but he was an important voice at, at, at a time of tremendous change in America. Edgar Allan Poe, Thoreau in Walden, and Nash, or Nathaniel Hawthorne. If we do, I just want to mention this for a minute. One of the amazing things that you discover when you do Scarlet Letter is this. Hawthorne goes back to the founding generation in that book. And um, what we learn is when the pilgrims first came, they all shared Protestant views. The principal view uniting them was sola fidea, faith alone, faith alone. Anne Hutchinson, who, is a, who Hawthorne looks as a heroine, he speaks of her that way in Scarlet Letter, is exiled because she follows the spirit. But her following the spirit comes to the expense of not going along with the rules of the Christian community. Because the Christian community believes that they're orthodox and anybody who does not follow those rules does not belong. So she's exiled. And you know there are gonna be witch trials shortly after. That's how deep that faith goes. Is that clear? Just for, I don't wanna go in here, but just think about that. Um, you've got somebody exiled on the basis of their private feelings and a Protestant community is saying 
you're only really faithful if you, if you conform to the laws of our community. So there's this tremendous conformity on one hand and this exceptional individuality on the other. Look at our modern world in America today and see if you can find the roots in that, okay? So Melville and Hawthorne were writing at a time when America was trying to discover who it was and they wrote, they wrote I think, the two greatest works of the, of the um, 19th century. It's important, I think, to look at um, Melville, Melville's Movie not just as a novel, as a modern work, which is the way most people are going to read it. It's important to see it as, um, as a continuation in some ways of the epic tradition. Um, if you remember, one of the qualities of the epic tradition was um, an eschatological view of things, a final end. So against the Iliad, against the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, I'll come back to in a minute, all of those epics assume a final end's perspective. The gods are there. The gods are involved with what men do now. So a divine order is always um, interacting with the human order, okay, even though it's beyond. So an eschatological quality is one of the marks of the epic. Dante radically changes the epic because you know he takes himself as the hero. He brings the epic into the present. All the other epics look back to an idealized past, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Dante brings it into the present. But he makes, he makes the, he, he presents the journey in, in eschatological terms. We see the final ends. We see hell, people who are already there, they're not going to leave. And we see heaven, people who are already there, they're not going to leave. He shows us the implications of our actions here by setting them against final ends. He could not have done that. He could not have done that without the book of Revelation. We just read it. You know that Revelation, if it's anything, it's a, it's a glimpse of final ends. The, the vic, there's no question about who's victorious. We saw that quite, if you remember, when you go through what we talked about. The, the battle's over. Christ won. The question is, what kind of choices people are going to make knowing that? That's the book of Revelation. But there's no question about what the final ends are. It's crucial to get this. Moby Dick is a work that sets itself against final ends. Except in Moby Dick, we see somebody struggling with final ends that are conceived in Protestant terms. Ahab's struggling because he's a product of a culture that's, that believes some people are damned. Predestined damned. His, his anger is largely a result of growing up in that culture. Imagine growing up in that culture and wondering, am I damned or not? I mean, hanging over your head all the time. And there would be nothing you could do about it. Not anything. You, you, because you don't have a will in it. Luther and, and Calvin both denied man's free will. There is no free will. That's not so for a Catholic. So Ahab is struggling against final ends, and because um, because people are some people are damned, that is evil, inherently evil, and fall, all fallen men are inherently evil. Without grace, they can't be saved. Where did that evil come from? If God creates the soul, and some people are predestined even before they're born to be damned, where does that evil come from? 
Melville is the first writer to flesh that out because Ahab's going to say again and again in the white whale section and you know the, the, when he looks at Moby Dick that there's this hidden malice there's, it's behind this mask he wants to strike through that mask get at it and get back at it for injuring his leg okay so he's, he's dealing explicitly with the effects of Protestant doctrines is that clear? Imagine. Uh, or the outrage you'd feel. I mean, he's got enough. Uh, he's a tragic hero. But he's got enough in him to resent it. He believes that um, Moby Dick bit off his leg and that there's some intent. There's some intent in nature. It's after him. That anybody could do that to die. Because think about it. What's the value of gift if you've not got any free will in giving it? The value of free will is if you want to give something, it's from your will. If you have no will and you give it, What's the worth of it? And we're in a different world here. And Ahab is struggling with it. Okay? So all epics have had an eschatological element, a background, a final ends. Melville is looking at this voyage with that as its background, its backstory. You can't understand what's going on with um, Ahab and Ishmael if you don't. When Ahab finally makes his presence felt when he comes out finally and presents himself to his ship he gets everybody to sign on his quest Moby Dick took off my leg my foot I want to get back he commits everybody to a vengeance story and Ishmael will say my voice was the loudest one what's behind all of that is a sense of being a victim that at the heart of the American character is this sense of victimhood. Is everybody following? Now stop and think about this. In every epic up to Moby Dick, who was the nemesis? Always. It's always another human being. Ahab, Hector, Odysseus, the suitors, the cyclops, the, the female architects that he has to come to terms with. Um, Aeneas, Turnus, right? Dante's got damnation, he's got himself to deal with. In every epic up to the time of Melville, the nemesis was another human being who stood on the same ground that he did. If there was any revolutions going on in the world, they were always against oppressors, tyrants, who wanted the same thing everybody else did, they only wanted to use their power to get more of it. What are the four goods that St. Thomas Boethius identified as the goods that all of us want. Do you remember? Power, Power fame, fame wealth, pleasure. Those are the four natural goods all of us seek. The problem is we want them too much or no. But they're natural goods. Name a tyrant who just didn't want more of those. The oppressor, the nemesis in Moby Dick is not another human being. It's nature. Nature is inherently evil. What do you do when you live in a world in which you're not going against another human being who did some wrong to you? You're in a universe which wronged you by your birth when you had nothing to say about it. So we're in an epic world, even, even though it's a novel that Melville is dealing with a much larger um, scene, a much larger concern. Okay.
So it leaves us with one of these questions at the end of the book. So I'm raising questions for everybody to keep in mind as you read. Um, is there a providence working in this? Or is it all chance and fortune? And I've already mentioned to you, it's really interesting to me in the beginning, Ishmael misses his ship. He ends up on another ship. And we ask Queequeg about signing up on board the Pequod. Queequeg turns to Yoho and says, my God says, you go. So here are these chance elements, and yet, if he didn't end up on the Pequod, if he ended up on another ship, we wouldn't have this story. Is everybody following? So there's also, so how many of us, how, this is so funny, we, we've been talking, trying to find Christ where we don't see him. He misses a ship. How many of us ever wonder when we end up on one car, one lane, or something, and not another? <laughs> I mean, I hope everybody's seen it. It, it just, it, it, it automatically puts one foot of ours in a mystery that we can't see. We don't know. So is this book all about chance and fortune and accidents and that are inscrutable and, you know, or is it about something more? Finally, I've, I've, also, um, I've also mentioned that this is fundamentally a, um, a background, I mean, a, um, a Jonah story. Um, okay, one of the important things to keep in mind structurally as you read through it you know that the first third of the book is set in um, New Bedford and then Nantucket. And in both of those cities, what Melville is showing us is a Protestant culture. And I want to just leave that without comment because I want to look at the characters in a second and ask you your thoughts about them. But we're there and they ship out. So what he's dealing with is a, a, a culture that's in crisis. There are two ways of reading the world that are coming into conflict, and we'll see it everywhere through the book. There's a biblical way of reading. People see the world through biblical terms. There's a scientific way of reading, and the two are at odds. And Ish, or Ahab, Ahab is in some ways caught in that. Are, they, are things determined, as they are for the sciences, that these, are, these can't be other than they are? Does that mean man has no free will? Um, he's a product of his age questions like that once they set out to sea he's going to go into a world that's not defined in terms of definite things remember land, land's our home not the sea Odysseus, Dante, the image of the sea the sea is an image of um, what's indefinite what's formless, what's mysterious so we get a close view of um, a Christian world in the opening and then we move out to sea, and largely through Ishmael's eyes, we begin to see the world in a different way. It's not the way Ahab sees it. At the beginning of the story, Ishmael identifies with Ahab's quest. He says, my voice was louder than anybody's. All men want to get back. All people have suffered. All people have been victims of something. But it's interesting to watch um, Ishmael because, I, you remember the word peripatia? Anagnorisis, peripatia. Peripatia means a turn in, in a tragic action. In a Jane Austen novel, all of them turn on a turn, a, a moment of recognition. You see something about yourself and your life changes. Ishmael undergoes several peripatia, several moments of seeing things that, that offer a different way of looking at the world from the way Ahab does. Ahab's vision is fixed. 
It's absolutely fixed. Ishmael is learning something about himself from the world. So when we go to see, we see a character reflecting on the nature of the world in a way Ahab never does. Ahab won't change his mind. He's absolutely fixed. Ishmael is open. He learns. He changes. Um, um, one modern critic had this to say. I, um, he's, he's talking about the ch- changes, the conversions that Ishmael undergoes during the course of his voyage. I suggest that the centrally important process is not adequately worked out in the novel. The novel fails in some ways. It's not sufficiently specified. These changes take place, and he's saying, Melville's dealing with them in a flawed way. Ishmael's survival is thus, to a considerable extent, miraculous. In a universe without God, such a miracle is hard to account for. How do you account for it? We're either in a godless world and this strange thing happens at the end or something else is going on. How do we read the events of the, of the epic? One of the major themes of the epic, here are some of the major themes. Maybe the most important is reading the world, how we read the world, how we see the world. Somebody, we've talked about this. Somebody who's born Islamic, somebody who's secularist, somebody who's Kantian or Cartesian, people see through lenses. The Protestants see the world in a certain way. So do Catholics. How many modern Catholics have been infected by Protestant beliefs? Serious question. The, the, the novel is principally about reading. Ahab has a certain way of reading and he's fixed on it on the basis of that. I can't, I can't get to that. On the basis that I'm doing everything I had to walk on the basis that a calamity happens at the end. Ishmael's learning to read. You know, I've been hitting you over the head with this saying since the beginning. We don't read well. We think we, because we don't have to go, we, we've got eyesight, we don't need doctors. Christ is everywhere healing blindness in the, you know, in the Bible. How blind are we? And worse, because we think we see. We don't need glasses. And So, major theme. Second, the machine in the garden. Um, a man wrote a book called Machine in the Garden, which he's taking the position that um, America was conceived of, as a pastoral garden, and yet it took this enterprising business out into it and virtually raped it to try to get from it what it wanted. Um, another major theme is, Christ, is Christianity defeated in this? Um, does it fail at the end? Those are some of the major questions just to keep in mind when we go. I want to look at the text. I want to get to the text because I, I want to get everybody reading. I'd like to look at Peter Coffin, uh, Mrs. Hussey, Father Mapple, Peleg and Bildad, I, um, um, Isaiah, Quiquig, and Ishmael, and ask this question. What do we learn about this Christian culture from the opening section, okay? But before I do, I know those are sweeping generalizations, but any, any questions about just those sort of broad, sweeping generalizations that I'm making? One last thing, just to add to the, the fire hydrant that I'm drowning you all with. Um, Alan Tate, who's 
at the top of my list of critics in the 20th century, amazing man made this point in one of his essays. He said um, that every civilization, when it reaches a point of maturity, um, undergoes radical changes in its character. A change takes place. It could be a change in, that produces a new paradigm, like the science or God with Moses. Or, um, but at every one of those moments, a society begins to question itself. It, no long, it can no longer take things for granted. It can no longer not reflect on things. And what it does, it becomes skeptical and begins to question. And when it does, it goes to metaphysical roots. It has to wonder about everything. What we're going to find when we do Dostoevsky is that's exactly what's... Dostoevsky's... Brothers Karamazov is going to be a real eye-opener for everybody. That's what Dostoevsky is looking at in Russia. But when you read Brothers Karamazov about Russia, it's impossible to look at that without seeing it's exactly what's going on in America. It, a whole Mother Russia, holy, holy Mother Russia, Holy Mother Russia has been um, influenced by all these enlightenment ideas from the 18th century, all these rationalist ideas um, to get rid of religion and traditions and God because they, those things cause problems. If you have this new world that's enlightened, you get away from all those problems. We can create a utopia, a new world. And we watch that wreck havoc with the Karamazov family and what's going on in Russia. So, and here's a quote from Emerson that, that gets closer. It's not the same thing. I think Tate's a, a deeper thinker, but Emerson said this. There's a moment in the history of every nation when proceeding out of this brute youth, when it comes to its age, the perceptive powers reach their ripeness and have not yet become microscopic. They're not yet capable of looking very closely at things. So that man at that instant extends across the entire scale and with his feet still planted on the immense forces of night, converses by his eyes and brain with solar and stellar creation. That is the moment of adult health, the culmination of power. I'm going to go back to Tate's because I, I think his is deeper. When every country reaches a point of maturity, um, it begins to question itself and goes through a, a really dark period. And it's at that point something happens because you no longer take things for granted. You begin to question things which enlarges the scope of mystery for your life and also meaning. Because you don't take things for granted. You see that there's meaning in everything. That's where Moby Dick is. He's on that threshold. A Christian world is passing. It's in conflict. This isn't just a wailing story. A Christian world is in crisis. The Protestant world, New England Protestant world, is in collapse. And it's giving rise to, because it's in tension with a scientific, a new way of reading things. We're in the middle of a crisis. This is the beginning of our modern age. These are our roots as moderns. So that's where we are, okay? Before we turn to the characters, any comments or questions or... Of course you do. All these illustrious things that you say about Melvin and Moby Dick and how you put it together, was that his intent? Is he that enlightened or smart or knows that much that he could put all this together? Because I absolutely do not see how I could ever do that. Well, all I can say is Melville has 
a lot more than I think most of us have, certainly me. I mean, he's an extraordinary man. Mary, let me try to answer it this way, because it's a really good question. In dog, I don't believe, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I'm just going to show what I don't know here. I, I don't have the sense that when this guy told the story that he understood it the way that I was presenting it. Which is a way of saying that very often writers have an intuition, something that they can't conceptualize. It has to be... Wait, I believe literature is superior to philosophy in this way, that arts take us to an intuitive, preconceptual glimpse of something. We have a light. You know when you're writing a paper and you've got an idea in your head and you have to write it out and you write it and you say, no, that's not quite it, and you scribble and tear it up. and You're trying to get to something you see, but because we have bodies, we have to work it out. And sometimes we don't get to it. Artists start with, if I can, that preconceptual intuitive sense of something. And then write a story. How much they can conceptualize that? Hard to say. I would say in Dog that the guy who wrote that probably didn't conceptualize what I'm suggesting is something there for us to look at. Now, if you can accept that, I'd say that's not so with Melville. Melville was a deep, deep reader. He thought about this stuff. He, he wrote volumes of stories in which he's dealing with. But Moby Dick is his masterpiece. What he's doing here shows. When, when, you, when you're with Queek or, uh, Ishmael, Ishmael's going to be talking about Plato. He's going to be critiquing Plato. He's going to be critiquing Descartes. He, I mean, he, he knows these philosophers. He sees the effects of He knows the Protestant world. It's in collapse. He suffered from I, I don't think anybody could have written this book who wasn't capable of seeing the depths of despair in the human soul, who didn't face that darkness. He, he could not. No, no, I don't believe any great poet can. At the, at the heart of Christianity is this conception of ourselves putting Christ on the cross. If, if we don't see ourselves there, I don't know that we can grow in his love. That's a, that's a part of our faith. Melville was an extraordinary person. He was well-read. He knew this stuff. So when Ishmael is critiquing Plato or Descartes or Kant or, you know, and looking at the structure of things, that's not a high school student. It's, it's not... I mean, he's a person working on a level certainly far beyond my own. His ability to see analogies, you know, between earthly things and others is extraordinary. And in every one of these, he's answering um, Calvin and um, Luther. Thanks. You know, he knows. He's, I mean, he's living in a culture in which he was brought up with this stuff, and he's watching what happens to it. He's, he's, he's more perceptive than most people are. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons for doing the literature that we're doing is to help us to see better with our sights, our minds, to understand more, so to enter into the depths of our faith more. The basics of this book, though, that I'm kind of with Mary a little bit on it, is I'm getting that you got Ahab. He knows he's going out on, for a revenge deal. And he's taking all these people with him and then convincing them that this is the right thing to do. Right. And that, that to me, and I guess Mary too, is that that's the basis of the book. Mm -hmm. Why did he have so much power in order to be able to do that and then to expand it to what you're talking about and all this about religion and everything else? And that's, 
That's awfully deep. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't know if I can get there either. I, I get the concept of the book is that you know, this guy goes on a revenge deal and he takes everybody with him. And, yeah. and, and even, the, even his captains, they say, let's just go back home. I want to go home and right, see my wife right, and kids. Right, 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 right. Melville's going to, wait, hold, Melville's going to show, we're going to get there. Melville's going to show us an awful lot about, we're, the, he's going to change our understand. I think, I hope. So when we look at when we look at the three mates, I don't want to go there too early. When we look at the three mates, what is Melville showing us about their response to evil? When we look at the three harpooners, what are we? Sh what is he showing us about their relationship to the mates, whom they serve, and Ahab's quest? I mean, this book is just full of meaning. So just be patient. I mean, at the center of it is what you're talking about. And I, mean, I, thought, I thought I gave the answer to that already. What gives him power over the... Oh, let me ask you. you. Hold on, you be still for a second. <laughs> what gives Ahab that power over that crew? He's the captain. Huh? He's the captain. Well, captain well it's military in a sense. When they sign on, they know what they're signing on for. Yeah, they have to. That's, how that's how a really interesting of this. I gave this. God. Yes. And, and Ishmael's going to hit on them. I'm going to come to that in a minute. They're, why would they do that unless they all felt victimized and they wanted to get back? What's at the heart of this book is this sense that all people are victims, particularly if you've been raised thinking you have no will in the matter, you're predestined to be damned with no choice. What a horrible, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to conceive of some, post-human really bothers me, you know, but to grow up in a world in which you believe you because I, I thought Calvinism was dead until I came to Texas. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I, I've met people who are. I, it just stuns me. I, I can't believe that people would believe that, but they do. Growing up under that, it just it just shakes me. It's so inhuman to my mind. Ahab grew up in that culture, or sorry, Melville, and he's the wonderful thing about it. This is not just about a captain who gets control of a ship. In Moby Dick, we, be, we get to go into their lives and live them with them. This is not philosophy. We're not talking about ideas. We get to experience this. I'm assuming most of you feel, when I read Ishmael, when he says, call me Ishmael, and we, you know, I, when I find myself bringing up funeral lines and I'm ready to shoot them, you know, we're there. It's not an idea. We're actually experiencing it. It's wonderful that Melville could tell this story so that we, so that we don't just think about it. We actually experience people doing these things the way we do every day of our lives. Do you think, to answer her question, it's about God, like you're saying that there's God, like um, literature, prophecy and literature, that he was a prophet, like Melville was a prophet in terms of like he was channeling or like the Bibles and parables and stories and so mm -hmm. he was doing the same thing. Yeah, I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid that question. <laughs> even though I, even though I've been saying, I keep trying to raise questions. These moderns I'm look at. You. I don't know. No, I can't. I don't even want to answer that. Right. What I want to do is I wait to see what you get to at the end. You know, because what you all think we've got a book to get through here. But, yeah. Lori, go ahead. Just, uh, with what's his role in everything? He seems like the more radical little. You guys want me? We're we're going back to characters right now. If you welcome, no, I just I don't want to. I'm trying. I I wanted to. I want us to go through the book together to experience it. And you're asking questions that, okay. you know, um, 
because I really want to see how you guys respond and the kinds of questions that you have as we go through this, you know. Because one of the major questions of the book is, is there a God or not? And what's Queequeg's role in it? I don't want to... Let's find out. Here, can, can we... Here, Peter Coffin, can everybody turn to page... Uh, or, or I'm, hold on. If all of you can get this book, you'll have the page number. I can't, I can't struggle with you. I'm going to give you a chapter, and you're going to have to find it on your own. I don't want any complaining... Yeah, so so chap, chapter two in this in this book in chapter two. Um, carpet bag. Ishmael has come to Bedford with the intent of shipping out. We know that, okay. What I want to do right now is I want to go through the major characters in the first part. So I want to look at Coffin, Hussey, Mapple, Peleg, Bildad, Isaiah, Quiquigish. Just I want to go to sections and and read just to get a feel for those characters and then say what's Melville doing here. So in the second chapter, the carpet bag, he comes to the Spouter Inn, and the the owner's name is fittingly. Peter Coffin. <laughs> and you know that there are all these, all these images, the tripods, there are all these images that are suggestive of death. So death is all around him. We're going to go to a, a chapel and it's going to have nothing but marble stones commemorating the dead. So the dead are going to be everywhere around here. But he comes to Coffin's um, Sprouter Inn, and on my page 39, it's the paragraph that begins, it was a queer sort of place. Death is the only glazier. True enough, thought I, um, as this passage occurred to my mind, old black letter. Thou reasonest well. Yes, these eyes are windows, and this body of mine is the house. What a pity they didn't stop up the chinks and the crannies, though, and thrust in a little lint here and there. But it's too late to make any impressions, improvements now. The universe is finished. The copstone is on, and the chips were carted off a million years ago. Poor Lazarus there, chattering his teeth against the curbstone for his pillow and shaking off his tatters. With his shiverings, he might plug up both ears and rags and put a corn cob in his mouth. And yet, that, that would not keep um, the temptatious Euroclidon, Euroclidon says old Dives. In the Bible, remember, Dives is the name of the guy um, who doesn't take care of Lazarus. And he goes to hell and he's asking, remember, he wants to go back and return so he can warn his brothers and Christ says if he didn't listen to Moses and you he's not going to listen to he's not going to listen to somebody returning from the dead um, says old dives in his red silken wrapper he had a redder one afterwards poo poo what a fine frosty night oh how orion glitters what northern lights let them talk of their oriental summer climbs and everlasting that is all this luxury stuff of luxury give me the privilege of making my own summer with my own colds but what thinks Lazarus? So, outside of Coffin's Spouter Inn is this guy in the gutter who everybody's ignoring. And probably most conspicuously, the proprietor. So we've got a view of dives of Peter Coffin. Mrs. Hussey, um, go to um, chapter 17. In my book, it's um, page 119. Yeah. 
or 17, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Mrs. Hussey has, has fed both of them her famous chowder, and they both loved it. In all respects, she seems like a hospital. She's running, she's running a bed and breakfast sort of thing. You know, she's putting up people and feeding them. And, um, and at the beginning of 17, as Kwikwig's Ramadan, or fasting, or humiliation was to continue all day, I did not choose to disturb him. So he goes, I say, go down a few lines, I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals. So he's just being patient while Kwikwig is performing his ritual. And you know from the beginning, when he watches him earlier, he watches Kwikwig um, whittle. So stop and think about it. This is a physical object. There's something incarnational. He has to physically make contact with his idol. He has to work with it as a cannibal, okay? Just hold that in your mind. So it's not a distant thing, you know, some other out there. He's physically working with it. Um, and this is an image of his God. And Ishmael is saying, we good Presbyterians should be charitable about these things. All our arguing with him would not avail. Let him be, I say, in heaven and have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Now, um, he looks through the peephole and he sees quickly performing this Ramadan. But Mrs. Hussey comes up and she can't get the door open. Ishmael tries to kick it open and um, she gets hysterical. And on 120, in my, it's a couple pages in. Get the axe, for God's sake. Run for the doctor some while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady, quickly pouring, putting down the vinegar, vinegar, vinaigrette so as to have one hand free. Look here. Are you talking about prying open any of my doors? And with that, she sees my, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, shipmate? So she says, get out of here. Over on the next page. I won't allow it. I won't have any of my premises spoiled. Go for the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here. But Avast, putting her hand on her side pocket, here's a key. That'll fit. I guess. Let's see. And with that, she, she turned it in the lock. But alas, we could sup, supplemental bolt remain. With, so they can't burst it open. She's, there's some concern whether he's dead, whether he's killed himself. She's concerned about the door. Okay. Um, let's go to Pillig and Bildad just to get, um, I want to get this straight in my own head right now. Um, chapter 9. Are you backing up to chapter 9? Yeah, I'm going to be going back and forth here. Um, my page, my page. Yeah. Um, remember it's here when Maple is giving his sermon that... Um, he takes as his focus the Jonah story. Jonah was trying to do everything he could escape God, and we have to think about Ishmael and what's, you know, what's in issue with him. And remember that he comes to a point where they reach a storm, and the sailors want to know what's going on, and they finally, it's determined that Ishmael is the one responsible, God's after him, and they throw him overboard. Um, and then he ends with lines like this. this is, so this is the center of the faith with a priest. Page 80. Shipmates, God has 
laid but one hand upon you. Both his hands press upon me. He's tried to do all this. Go down below. Then God spoke unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up towards the warm and pleasant sun, and all the delights of air and earth, and vomited out Jonah upon thy land. When the word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah bruised and beaten his ears like two seashells, still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean, Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that? To preach the truth in the face of false. So Maple presents himself as a, as a Jonah Fitzgerald. He, he knows the experiences of the seas. He survived them. And now he's um, doing God's will. This shipmates is, um, this is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the water when God has brewed them. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appeal. Woe to him whose good name is more than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. That is, wanting to be liked by people. That's one, remember, one of the four goods. Woe to him who would not be true even though to be false were salvation. Woe to him who, as the great pipe pulse, has it while preaching to others himself a castaway. He goes on in that vein. Um, turn to 16. Let's see. If I, I'm going to be bouncing around for a bit here. This is when Ishmael comes to um, sign up. And... Um, on page 110, this is a couple pages in from the beginning of the chapter, several, about four or five pages in. Now, Bill did like Pillig, and indeed many other Nantuckers was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain an uncommon measure, the peculiarities, peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. Sanguinary is hot in the blood, you know, ready to fight. So, the, um, so that there were instances among them of men who named with scripture names and singular common with this idiom that dignified, audacious, courageous, bold, like kings. On the next page, um, um, that man makes one in a whole nation census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. He's describing the, the nobility of these Quakers. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. But as yet we have not to do with such a one, but with quite another and still a man, who if indeed peculiar, if only results again from another phase of the Quakers modified by individual circumstances. So even if there are differences, they seem to have they share these qualities. This is the important part I want to, it begins with a paragraph like Captain Peleg builded was a well-to-do. In the middle of that paragraph it reads, the refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had eliminately invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of Leviathan gore. How now in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence, I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. The world pays dividends, 
rising from the little cabin boy in short clothes of the drabus drab to a harponer in the broad shad bellied waistcoat from that becoming boat leader chief mate captain finally ship owner bill dad as i've hinted had concluded his adventurous career by wholly retiring from active life but financing these these things um 113, I, um, I thought him the queerest old cake Quaker I ever saw, especially as Peleg, his friend and old shipmate, seemed such a bluster. Peleg now threw open a chest, and it's here that Peleg negotiates this with Ishmael. He says, I was already aware that in the whaling business they paid no wages, but all hands, including the captain, received certain shares. Go down. I was also aware that being a green-handed whaling, my own lay would would not be very large, but considering that I was used to the sea, could steer a ship, splice a rope and all that, I made no doubt that from all I'd heard, I should be offered at least 275th lay. That is the, that part. Um, go down now, 114. Now, Opidig was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, his old Bildad, to my no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party in these proceedings, Bildad never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book. Bildad is reading, lay not up for yourselves upon earth. Pillig says, well, what do you say? Thou knowest best the 770, he wants to give him the 700 part of what they make. They go on like that, and finally, um, I'm going to put him down for the 300th, said Peleg. Do you hear that, Bildad? 300th, I lay. All of this is taking place while Bildad is reading scripture, and Christ is saying, lay up your treasures, not here, um, because you're not going to be able to take it with you. Let me stop, because we're, but I want, I want to just, so look, we've got, I want to still look at more of Peleg and Bildad and Isaiah, and Quicken um, Ishmael, I'm going to have to wait on that. But at this point, can you make, what's your sense, I know this is very general, but what should, can you draw any sense at all about this Christian culture from Hussey, Coffin, Mample, and Peleg and Bildad? We have, we have to look at um, 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 Isaiah and um, um, Ishmael and Quicken, and, um, but at this point, what what can you say about this Christian culture from um, just the people we've looked at? That there are um, businessmen first, Christians second. Yeah. That's, that's the commercial culture again. Yeah. It was agreed for wealth. Huh? Agreed for wealth. Yeah. Remember Father Father James? I don't know if this is commonplace. I know he it's used common. to. Huh? Oh, the gospel of. Um, the gospel of prosperity. prosperity. Yeah, right. He constantly talks about the gospel of prosperity. Yeah. Um, what else? Anything else? How well are they living their religion? Truthfully, Pussy, she cares more about her door than she cares about Quiqueg. Coffin is ignoring um, Lazarus <coughs> suffering in the gutter. In the gutter. Peleg and Bildad care more about care more about their wealth, whatever they make, um, and they both flirt with the notion of death. Some of the words they speak show that they're sort of mindful of death. They have no idea what's coming, and it will come. Father Mapple, what are you, thoughts about Father Mapple? He seems genuine, though. Hmm. I mean, he seems genuine. <laughs> Go ahead. 
Anybody else? Father Mapples is really interesting. He is. He is. I mean, he's, he just seemed very sincere. And then the others were sort of hypocritical. Like, they had a division, a strict line yep. between religion and practical life, yep. right? But he, yep. he, he was authentically, I mean, I, that was my reading. Yeah. He seems he was earnest. Huh? He seems to me like, uh, you know, he's above everybody else. You he's know? a sympathetic character. Wait, let me go back. First of all, because I, I just want to underscore because we're about ready. Everybody is hypocritical. They claim the life of a Christian, and they're not living it. All of them. And Mapple's an interesting case. So let me just ask this question, because Ernest, to me, is a little bit of an understatement. He's ready to take everybody on. So how would you look at him in terms of charity? The virtue of charity. We don't see his charity put to the test, actually. Say again? We don't see his charity being put to the test. Well, he's trying oh, to right. speak yeah. the truth. I mean, that's his charity, is truth in love, right? I mean, that is love. How he expresses charity is by giving the truth. Okay, let me ask this. Could, uh, would you all, I mean, this is because it's a really delicate subject and touchy. Um, when people speak the truth, can they ever do that with a motive to hurt? Is speaking the truth always charitable? No. No, it's not. You can be the you can speak the truth sometimes just to wound a person because you're, you know, speaking the truth but doing it in charity. I mean, look, watch Christ. Because I mean he's he's our example. He takes on the Jews everywhere on a matter of truth. Set Maple next to Christ. Wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> Mapple struck me as um, he had been changed by experience somehow. He had had a great conversion somehow. Because he was a whaler, right? And then came home to be a minister or preacher. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, was, he had somehow been deeply affected, converted, parapetia, whatever, and then... <laughs> Wait, say the last part again. What did you say? <laughs> Are you making fun here? Right. The thing is, he's not, he shows in his posture of prayer and in his, yeah, passion about telling, you know, the people, he's trying to share with them his own experience. He's not being hypocritical in that sense of, like, do what I right. do, not what I do. Yeah. He felt that he was actually living this. Yeah. Are these charitable statements like Christ would make, or are they invectives, if I can use that word? Hold on on that. Let me go back. Turn back to chapter 7, because we've got to stop here. When Ishmael comes to the chapel... Remember, in a, this is chapter 7, first page, 
He walks in, I found a small scattered congregation of sailors and sailors' wives and widows. A muffled silence reigned, only broken at times by the shrieks of the storm. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other, as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there, um, there these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly eyeing several marble tablets. All of them, you know, refer to um, their memorials commemorating death. So nobody's sitting together. They're all isolated and alone. They're all, in fact, right, yeah, good. Um, they're all isolated, and when they go on board ship, they're going to be referred to as isolados. All the people live in isolation in this world. It's one of the other characteristics we find. Shaking off the dust from my ice glazed hat and jacket, I seated myself near the door and turning sideways was, was surprised to see Queequeg. Affected by the solemnity of the scene, there was a wondering gaze of incredulous curiosity in his countenance. This savage was the only person present who seemed to notice my entrance because he's the only one who could not read and therefore was not reading those frigid inscriptions. We've talked about what education does to people. All these people are educated. And here's Queequeg standing out. And by the way, I just quickly, remember in the wheelbarrow episode when, he, when he's carrying the stuff and this little boy is taunting him and he picks him, throws him up in the air and swats him on his rear end and all the people are horrified. And the little, little victim, little victim, comes goes grinding the cat, Captain, Captain, Captain. And he looks at Quico and what does he say? Devil. Because anybody who's a cannibal like that is not baptized, not Christian. Every, in fact, we see this repeatedly. All look at Quiquig as unredeemed, damned. Son of darkness. Wait, so this is the chapel that Ishmael enters with this sense that a kind of spirit of death hovers over everybody. A despair, a loneliness, an isolation. And then Mapple comes in and gives this um, um, authentic sincere homily full of invectives. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, it just goes down the line. Um, so um, think about Peter Coffin, Hussey, Pilleg, Bildad, Maple. We've got to look at um, Isaiah and then Ishmael and Quiqueg. I wanted to get to them tonight because they really begin the book, but we'll wait on that. But take... What is Melville showing? What is Melville showing us about this Christian culture? Serious question. When you put all those people together, they're very different. They're all Christian, so they're exhibiting different traits, but they all seem to have something in common. One of them is hypocrisy. Clearly, there's um, an excessive concern for money, um, and we have to, I mean, give some thought to Maple because he's a, um, a interesting figure. But think about how important it is to bring truth and charity together. Is there anything in this religious view that would undermine charity? Yes, because yeah. he takes his delight in deliciousness. Is it, or his exact words in the last paragraph. Just I mean, because I, I, we didn't do it tonight, but I'm going to go to that paragraph where he sees Quiquig whittling on Yoho. And again, when he, he says, um, when he talks about being a Presbyterian, he says, I have to turn pagan. He renounces his Christian faith to worship with him. Because to do what Ishmael is, or Quiquig is doing is to be 
against God. So Melville is looking at a Christian culture that, that seems to be flawed in some way without realizing it. Okay? Nobody's, they're not criticizing each other, they're all getting along, but Melville's showing us something about the New England Christian culture at a time when it's in crisis. Okay? Let's stop, because um, when we start next week, I want to look at um, Ishmael and Queequeg, and then we're going to look at Ahab when he pulls the crew together um, to, to unify them around this quest, okay? How? Why? Why do you say that? Oh, you just said the last. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It, it's really. It's an amazing story. It's really. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Doc, did you turn that off? Yes. Fine. Th this. Yeah. <laughs>